activists raising money and awareness for local social service organizations, and political initiatives. For more information about the Oakland Art Murmur, go online at www.oaklandartmurmur.com. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Every two minutes, an American is sexually assaulted. Take action today. Join Rain in the fight against sexual violence and volunteer in your local community. Visit rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G today to find out how you can make a difference. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. When I got the crisp $50 bill in advance, I figured my client had a heart of gold. But after I was beat up, double-crossed, and shot at, I realized just how hard a heart of gold can be. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's unusual story, The Heart of Gold. I had spent the day trying to decide how to spend the day, and finally convinced myself Sunday afternoon was a good time to catch up with neglected bookkeeping. But I only got as far as the office door because a special delivery letter was stuck in the mail slot. I ripped it open and watched a crisp $50 bill flutter to the floor. Bending it down with my toe, I turned to the letter, which was dated Saturday. Dear Mr. Marlowe, kindly investigate the party who lives at 1903 North Ogden Street to find out if his name is really Elliot Perdue and what his occupation is. Then please come to my residence at 5 tomorrow, Sunday. I live at the home of a friend, Arthur Stewart, 33 Lemonwood Drive in Bel Air. I sincerely hope that $50 will be a sufficient retainer. Truly yours, Helen Asher. Judging from the tone of her letter, it was obvious that Helen Asher didn't hire private detectives very often. Nevertheless, I glanced at my watch, which said I had to work very fast, and I headed for 1903 North Ogden. Turned out to be a small house near Selma Street. I got out of my car and walked up to the door. Good afternoon, sir. You the resident here? That's right. What do you want? I represent the Dr. Potter Poll of Public Opinion. I'd like to ask you a few questions well, regarding... Sorry, but I don't have any opinions to express. Oh, even the opinions of a man with no opinions are important to us. Now, let's just let me step inside here and get out my notebook. There we are. Uh, all right, but make it fast. Right. Now, what is your occupation? I'm an investment broker. With which firm? I'm uh, independent. I see. And what is your name, sir? What do you need my name for? Well, for my personal records in case I have to come back. Elliot Perdue. Uh-huh. Do you have any hobbies other than horse racing? What? What do you mean? Those dope sheets and racing forms there on your desk. I'm quite an admirer of horse flesh myself. <laughs> You're quite a character, too, aren't you? Working on Sunday and all? Well, you know how public opinion is. It goes right on rain, shine, or Sunday. Excuse me a moment. Oh, by the way, uh, what's your name? Marlowe. Philip Marlowe. Hey, Mr. Marlowe. Stand still, because I'm not kidding about this gun. 
Now feed it back to whoever hired you and tell them they're being very clumsy about a very delicate situation. One more move like this and they won't get another chance. I knew Purdue meant business, so I left without an argument. And at least I had a repeat on the name, Elliot Purdue, and the occupation of bookie to cross at Helen Asher when I met her at 5 o'clock. In Bel Air, I eventually found 33 Lemonwood Drive. 200 yards of palm trees stood at rigid attention while I drove through the gate and up to the house. When the butler opened the door, he stared at me like my hat was on fire. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, did you did you wish something? Yes. Yeah, I'd like to see Mrs. Asher, please. Mrs. Asher? Oh, good heavens. Uh, Mr. Stewart. What's the matter, Robert? Uh, who is it? Why is it? I'm Philip Marlowe, Mr. Stewart, a private detective. I have an appointment with Mrs. Asher. Is she at home? Oh, Mr. Marlowe, perhaps you can help. I don't know what to do. It's such a terrible thing. What's happened? Upstairs, not five minutes ago, Mrs. Asher shot herself. Shot herself? Please, if you'd come up with me. Yeah, sure, of course. I'm certainly grateful for your help, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah, this is her room. Yeah, she's in here. There. Yeah. She's dead, all right. Shot herself in the left temple. Whose gun is that, Mr. Stewart? Well, it's mine. I kept it in the desk downstairs. Did you find her? No, Roberts did. I was out in the hothouse working with my orchids. You see, I've been out of town. I just came in this morning on the Super Chief from Chicago, and I wasn't expected back until Wednesday. Yeah, uh, look, Mr. Stewart, do you mind telling me how well you knew Mrs. Asher? Oh, very well indeed. Ever since the accident three years ago, she lived in my house under my care. The accident? Yes, that's how she got those uh, scars on her cheek and neck, as you can see. Uh, my hands were burned at the same time. Do you mind telling me about it? Well, I was living in Canada at the time. One day, my wife Florence and I went to a camp near Quebec, and we met Helen Asher our first day there. She was a pathetic, lonely woman, a widow. Oh. And that very night, while she was visiting us, the oil stove in our cabin exploded. Oh. Florence, my wife, was killed, and Mrs. Asher was severely burned. It was ghastly. I can imagine Mrs. Asher had no one, so I thought the least I could do would be to care for her, since I knew the accident had been caused by sheer carelessness on my part. You took over full responsibility for her? Yes, I did everything I could think of, but she never quite got over the shock of that night, and now... Now this, it's horrible. Have you notified the police yet? Uh, no, you no. better do it right now. Yes, I'll go right downstairs and call them. The dead woman on the floor had been beautiful once. No doubt about it. This was my client's. And a certain $50 bill was burning a hole in my pocket. I wandered over to a writing table, and as I looked down, I noticed that the Sunday sheet had been thrown off the memo pad. It bothered me. Tomorrow should mean nothing to a suicide, yet Mrs. Ash's memo pad showed Monday already. The sheet was blank, but on a hunch I tore it off and stuck it in my pocket. I was about to turn away when I saw a book of matches from the Conga Club. So I picked that up, too, and then I left. I drove around for some time trying to figure things out. Then I went down to police headquarters to see one Lieutenant Ibarra. It's suicide as far as we're concerned, Marlowe. Everything checks. Mrs. Asher was despondent and she killed herself. She didn't leave a suicide letter, but they don't always. How'd you get in on this? Well, she paid me 50 bucks in advance to air out a small-time bookie or worse named Elliot Purdue. Incidentally... What's the background on Arthur Stewart? Oh, he's a big money fashion designer. Started his business on his wife's insurance. She died in an accident in Canada. Mm. He did a lot for Mrs. Asher because he felt responsible. Yeah, yeah, I know all that. But was she left-handed? Did Stewart come in on the super chief this morning, and was it the butler that found the body? That's right. We checked it off. Uh, 
Hey, look, Phil, do you have any good reason to think this isn't suicide? No, no, not really. It's just that $50 in advance that bothers me, I guess. Oh, by the way, I've got a piece of paper I'd like the boys in the lab to run a test on, okay? Sure, Casey will fix you up. Uh, Marlo, I figure suicide now, but I can always change my mind. I went down the hall to the police laboratory and handed the blank page of the memo pad to Casey. Ten minutes later, he explained that the impression showed a left-handed person had written a number, Bradshaw 7, 7 with a wide-point fountain pen, probably on the page just above the one I'd given him. And I thanked him, dropped four bits in the Christmas fund bottle, and found the phone. I dialed Bradshaw 7, 7 and waited. Hello? Hello? Who's this? The man in the moon. Come up and see me some other time. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I like your voice. And besides, 7711 is a very lucky number. Uh-huh. Three passes in a row. But don't let it fool you, Jack. The answer is no dice. Goodbye. Yes. Well? I gathered she was in no mood for playing, so I decided to be strictly business and dialed again. Hmm. There was no answer. I let it ring for some time, but Miss Golden Voice obviously wasn't taking any more anonymous calls. I'd left only the long shot, the book of matches I'd found on Mrs. Asher's desk. The conga club was on the Sunset Strip, so I drove out there, found a parking space on a side street nearby, and went in. I didn't know exactly what I was looking for, so I paid a buck ten for a scotch and soda worth 40 cents just to help pass the time. An amber spotlight was glistening down on a set of sequin contours that would have melted the ice age down to a fortnight. And she was singing. For wherever my man is, I am here. the conga's featured songstress, and I knew something else, too. There was no mistaking that voice. She was the girl with a lucky phone number. I wrote her a note, called a waiter to the table to deliver it, and then sat back to watch her as she glided over and sidled into a chair opposite me. It was your penmanship that intrigued me, Mr. Malone. It was your voice and so forth, mostly the so forth, that got me, Benita. Uh, would you care to decipher the Sanskrit you call a note? The waiter said you wrote it. Sure. It says important business. Uh, that's an idiom. <laughs> if you wanted to talk to Turkey, how would you translate it? Do you know a woman named Helen Asher? Not that I remember. Why? Well, your phone number showed up on a memo pad. How do you account for that? How should I know? Maybe she intended to call me up. Look, you're quite a handsome man, Mr. Marlowe. But you look silly with your nose bent. Why do you keep sticking it into other people's business? Because besides being paid for it, it sometimes leads to meeting interesting and beautiful people. Present company included. What do you want? Mrs. Asher killed herself tonight. Mrs. Asher's dead? Yeah, yeah. And considering you said you didn't know her, you look very put out about it. All right. I'll let you win. But let's not talk about it here. Finish your drink while I get out of this costume. Then meet me outside by the front door in ten minutes. She headed for the back of the club. I headed for the front. 
I got out the door and down in my car just in time to see her leave by the stage entrance. She jumped into a yellow convertible, ripped down Sunset Boulevard, turned on to Doheny, and scraped to a halt in front of the region apartments. At the door, a tall, sunburned man popped up from somewhere and intercepted her. It was Elliot Perdue. A short but hot argument took place, and apparently Perdue won, because they went in together. I found the name Benita Malone over the mailbox in number five. And got to her apartment door just as the second round started. No, I haven't changed my mind, Elliot. I've been doing a little research since you threw me over, Benita. I've got you and your precious plans right here in the palm of my hand. What are you talking about? This. This little heart-shaped locket on this little golden chain. Let me see oh, that. No, no, no. I'm not showing this trinket until just the right moment. Listen, Elliot. I don't know what's brewing in that slimy brain of yours. But get this, if you try to monkey with my life again, so help me, I'll kill you now. Get out! Benita, would you be interested if I told you that I know Mrs. Asher's secret? And would you be interested if I told you that Mrs. Asher killed herself tonight? That slows you down, doesn't it, bright boy? Yes, but it doesn't stop me, beautiful. I'll be seeing you before you know it. I ducked into an alcove and heard Benita slam the door and produce coattails as he left. Purdue, a locket, and Benita Malone added up some way to a bullet in the head for a scarred woman with a secret. I went back to my car and drove out to Stewart's house in Bel Air. When you were here before, Marlowe, I was so upset I hardly realized you were a private detective. Now, you had an appointment with Mrs. Asher. Had uh, she hired you? Yes, to investigate someone, but she didn't live long enough to give me the details. Now, what sort of trouble could she have been in to have needed a private detective? I don't know. But perhaps you can help me find out by answering a few questions. Anything. Anything at all, Mr. Marlowe. Does the name Elliot Perdue mean anything to you, Mr. Stewart? Elliot Perdue? No, I'm afraid not. How about uh, Benita Malone? No, I've never heard of her. Hmm. You know anything about a heart-shaped locket on a gold chain? A locket? A gold locket? Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Asher had a heart-shaped gold locket. Where'd she keep it? Upstairs in her jewelry box, I should imagine. Come on, let's have a look, huh? Yes. Right up these stairs here. This is her room, Marlowe. I know. I was here once before. Why? It's not here. It's not on her dressing table. Her her jewelry box, it's gone, Marlowe. You think that... Elliot Perdue has it. I can't understand this. What's the locket like? What's inside it? Just a picture. It was valued by Mrs. Asher because it was the only one she kept of herself the way she looked before the accident. Now, why would anyone else want that? I don't know. But when we get that locket, we'll get a lot of answers along with it. Now I was more convinced than ever that Elliot Perdue, Benita, and the late Mrs. Asher's secret were all dangling from the same chain that supported the gold locket. I said goodnight to Arthur Stewart and started back for Hollywood. But a moment later, I changed my mind and abruptly swung onto a shadowed side road and parked lights out. It had suddenly occurred to me that a gallivanting Mr. Perdue might call on Stewart. And if so, I wanted to be on hand. Well, Forty minutes later, I was about to call off the cloak and dagger routine when I, I heard the sound of a powerful motor roaring out of Stewart's driveway. I looked up just in time to see a long black nash whip by with Stewart at the wheel. From the speed of the car, I was certainly wasn't going out for the morning papers. Decided to go back to the house and question the butler while I could have him to myself. 
Why, no, Mr. Marlowe. I haven't any idea where Mr. Stewart went. I only know that he had a telephone call, after which he dashed out of the house highly upset. Well, maybe some sick friend needed sitting up with, huh? But tell me, Roberts, did you ever hear of a man named Elliot Perdue? Oh, yes, sir. Uh, he called on Mrs. Asher here once or twice while Mr. Stewart was away on business. When did you last see this, Mr. Perdue, Roberts? Uh, yesterday morning, sir, about 10 o'clock. Hmm. And one thing more, did you ever see Mrs. Asher wearing a gold locket, a heart-shaped one? Oh, quite often, sir. As a matter of fact, she asked me about it just yesterday morning, shortly after Mr. Perdue left. She couldn't locate it anyplace. A singular coincidence, huh? Oh, by the way, what do you know about a singer named Benita? Benita? Uh, I've never heard of her, sir. Are you sure she's never been out here as Mr. Stewart's guest? Why, I'm positive, sir. Uh, Mr. Stewart never has any ladies out here of any kind. Oh? Doesn't that strike you as being strange, Robert? After all, Mr. Stewart's a very eligible widower. Widower, yes, Mr. Marlowe, but philanderer, no. Good night, sir. As I drove back to Hollywood, I tried to figure out where Arthur Stewart had gone. But I had about as much to work with as Gypsy Rose Lee after her third encore. And after discounting Benita's place in the Congo, there was only Elliot Perdue's house on North Ogden. Fifteen minutes later, I walked up to it, but the place was as dark and as quiet as the inside of a coffin. I was about to turn back to my car when suddenly I caught the reflection of a sliver of light bouncing off the glass in Mr. Perdue's living room. I found the back door lock easy to bluff. A moment later, I stepped into the living room. Hello. How, how did you know I was here? Mr. Stewart told me. You're a liar. Arthur wouldn't... Arthur? Uh, I... Well, you see, Mr. Stewart and I... Oh, are... no, it's Mr. Stewart, huh? Wait a minute, there's someone outside. Purdue. Put out your light. Now, when he finds you, keep talking. Say anything. I'll be behind the door. Here he is. Well, Benita. <laughs> what a waste of time, my dear. While you've been here rearranging my socks, I've been talking to your boyfriend with the locket safely tucked away right here in my breast pocket. How clever of you. How absolutely ingenious. It's a bit late for nasty words between us, Benita, because possession of you was part of the bargain I struck with Mr. Stewart. You see, we... What are you staring at? My big blue eyes, but two, don't move or I'll blast you. You'll do nothing. Don't... Get the gun, Benita. Alfred, you will play for more. <laughs> Now the gentleman's breast pocket. Ah, here it is, Benita. Safe and sound. Which is just the way I want it, Phil. What? My own gun. Why, you beautiful the snake. The locket, Marlowe. Come on, I get nervous with one of these things in my hand. Throw it here. Thank you. Now when I leave, Phil, don't come after me. Because I'd hate to fill you full of little holes. Good night, dear. <laughs> stepped out of that house, I solemnly swore I wouldn't trust another woman for the next hundred years. But a groan from the body on the floor brought me back to 1948 and Elliot Perdue. I knew that he had seen the picture in the locket, so I went to work on him. Come on, Perdue, snap out of it. Come on. Huh? Oh, it's you, Marlowe. Who'd you expect, St. Peter? What was in the locket, Perdue? I don't remember. Maybe a call on Lieutenant Ibarra will refresh your memory. I doubt it. And we better start playing games again. We'll start with one called Slap Slap Perdue. No, no, let me alone, Marlowe. Get your hands off me. Uh, you're ready to start singing, huh? 
All we need now is the right lyrics. No! Come on, for you. Talk! Stop it! Stop it! I'll talk. Good. Now, why did Mrs. Asher kill herself? Because she had a good reason. Like what? Uh, it's a long story. Make it short. Okay, Marlo. Here goes. Hello, Ibarra. There's a five-minute-old corpse lying in his living room at 1903 North Ogden. Name is Elliot Perdue. Three shots through a closed window. I was lucky. Any description of the killer? No, none. Now, look, Ibarra, right now I'm going after a songbird named Benita Malone at the Regent Apartments on Doheny. Will you cover me there without sirens? Sure, Marlo. I'll attend to it in person. was only a healthy centerfielder's peg from Bedew's house to Benita's. When I got there, the place was dark and a car wasn't in sight. I decided to try the conga club. But as soon as I walked in, I began to worry because if Benita had wanted to get rid of that luck, she'd have had enough time to bury it at Forest Lawn. But I didn't know Benita because Miss Oomph herself was singing in the amber spotlight. And dangling from her soft white neck was the heart-shaped gold locket. I love you, because he's wonderful. Because he's just my bear. When she caught my eye, she smiled like a maitre d. And the moment she was through with her song, she headed back in my direction. But before she got to me, I saw her give the high sign to an ape in a tuxedo. He looked at her and then across toward my table and left the room. I watched Benita glide across the floor in my direction. She was distinctly a thing of beauty. Well, Phil, what do you think of my singing? Oh, I'm just crazy about it. That and your jewelry. Especially that locket, family heirloom. Mm -hmm. It was more or less handed down to me, generation to generation. That's an old uh, Spanish custom. Yeah, yeah, so I've been told. And I imagine tradition prohibits your parting with it, huh? That's right. Unless, of course, someone someone with oodles of money offers me lots of it in exchange. So naturally, I'd be obliged to part with it. I don't think you'd feel obliged to your mother on the second Sunday in May. And besides, I don't have oodles of money. Oh, you should have told me that earlier. Goodbye, good luck. Hey, wait a minute. We couldn't do any business in a minute. And don't follow me if you want to stay pretty. pivoted on a spike heel and took off for a dressing room, and I knew that if I followed, I was scheduled for a nasty tater tape with an ape in a tuxedo. When I made the lower floor and saw that the long corridor to a room was empty, I knew the setup. The ape would be on the other side of the door waiting. Benita still had my gun, so I got the nearest substitute for a blackjack, a full bottle of Paul Masson champagne. Then I walked noisily down the corridor as far as her door and knocked. Turned the knob slowly kicked the door open and stood clear. It worked. The ape's hairy hand was wrapped around my gun and it came down in an arc that was never interrupted. And that left him on balance. <laughs> the ape hit the floor and before Benita had a chance to close her mouth, I ripped the locket from my neck, picked my gun up and ran. I didn't stop until I collapsed against the store window. Then I opened up the locket. Two minutes ran out of me before I realized what was wrong with the picture. Then I knew... Arthur Stewart's home in Bel Air was my next stop. Mm -hmm. 
minutes later, I pulled up away from the place and parked. And keeping in the shadows, I approached the house when only the library and an upstairs bedroom showed any light. The library had French windows. When I moved up close, I was startled by the sight of a figure going through Stuart's desk. I stepped into the room and found it was my little friend, Bernita. I've got my own gun again, Bernita. Bill. Oh, doing a little dusting, honey? Oh, don't be funny. I'm not trying to. How is it you're not upstairs helping Stuart pack? Because I've already finished packing, Mr. Marlowe, and don't turn around. That was well done, Benita. Oh, fine. Sucked in by a little decoy sprinkled with sequins. Don't mind the pose, Marlowe. Just toss your gun on the couch over there. Now. Uh, that's better. You know, Marlowe, I can't say that I'm very sorry for you. I don't expect condolences from a character who murdered a woman this afternoon and a man this evening. You killed Mrs. Asher? Yes. And that blackmailing scum for you as well. But both murders were very necessary, Benita. Even as Marlowe's here will be. Come over here, Benita. Behind me. Hurry, Arthur. Let's get out of here. Don't worry. And now, Mr. Marlowe, it's time for you. Well. <laughs> thanks, Benita. You swing a beautiful bookend. You know, I had you figured all wrong. No, don't mention it, dear. I heard the cops coming anyway. You sweet child. We're in here, Ibarra, all of us. Come on, I figured you'd be out here when he didn't show up at that songbird's place. Well, what's this? A little man on the floor with a large bump on his head is Arthur Stewart. The man who killed Elliot Perdue to keep him from telling me the truth about Mrs. Asher. And the man who killed her this afternoon. So Mrs. Asher didn't commit suicide after all. No, but she wasn't murdered either. She died in that accident in Canada three years ago. What are you talking about? Well, the woman that Stewart killed here this afternoon wasn't Mrs. Asher. It was his wife, Mrs. Florence Stewart. You see, there must have been a mix-up in identifying the bodies of the two women at the time of the accident. Mm -hmm. Stewart and his wife had Mrs. Asher buried as Mrs. Stewart. Then they collected the insurance neat, huh? Yeah. But what happened? Yeah, it's simple. Stewart got bored with his scarred and unattractive wife, and he started running around with choice little numbers. Like Benita here. Still honest, I didn't know a thing about this. Stewart told me that Mrs. Asher depended on him so heavily that she'd be crushed at his seeing another woman. But I didn't know she was his wife. Marlowe, how do you figure this all out? From a locket that belonged to the woman we knew as Mrs. Asher. It had a picture of Stuart and Mrs. Asher taken in dress clothes before she was scarred. Yet Stuart claimed that he and his wife had only met Mrs. Asher the day of the accident. And on a camping trip at that. But, Phil, I saw the picture, too, and I didn't figure that out. That's because you were too busy trying to figure just how much the locket was worth to Arthur Stewart. Or to anybody. In cold cash. You were blinded by all the dollar signs in front of your eyes, baby. Why, Phil, how can you say such things? Now, Marlowe, just so I don't toss and turn all night, tell me just why you were hired in the first place. Well, Ibarra, it goes something like this. When Purdue knew that he was losing Benita to Stewart, he decided to check up on the opposition. And he not only found out what he wanted to know, but he found out a lot of things, too, that he didn't want to know. Mrs. Stewart, the late Mrs. Asher, became suspicious of his questioning. And incidentally, of her husband. So she sent for me. Well, Marlowe Stewart certainly had me fooled. I doped him out to be a very generous guy, a great benefactor who was doing the right thing for a lonely, unfortunate woman. Yeah. Looked like he had a heart of gold, all right. But a funny thing, Ibarra... In the end, it was this heart of gold, this locket here that got him. Mind if I keep it? Not at all. You had a tough enough time getting hold of it. Good night, Phil. <laughs>
Well, by the time I got back to my apartment on Franklin, the sky was beginning to fill with a soft gray of morning. I pulled the blinds down in my bedroom and sat down for a last cigarette. I'd mixed with a lot of funny people that day. But for some cockeyed reason, I kept thinking of Benita Malone, a girl who was no better than she had to be. Finally, I put her out of my mind, and I was about to turn off the desk lamp when I noticed my memo pad. Still that Sunday, which was understandable. But scrawled across the top sheet was a telephone number. And I couldn't figure how it got there. It was written in crimson lipstick. Bradshaw 7. 7-11. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Featured in tonight's cast, were Gloria Blondell, John Daner, Jack Moyles, and Ben Wright. Detective Lieutenant Ibarra was played by Jeff Corey. The special music was conceived and conducted by Richard O'Rant. Be sure to be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... They were all after it. An importer, a beautiful woman, a nut, and a guy I couldn't figure out. But before we were through, one was in the hospital, two were in the morgue, and the fourth was waiting for the hangman. All that because of a blue burgonette. Something I'd never even heard of before. Dr. Fabian, the ship's doctor in cabin B-13, tells a new story of danger in far ports tonight over most of the CBS network stations. Tonight's story, The Island of Coffins, is another original drama by John Dixon Carr, famed mystery writer. You can hear it when the ship's whistles sound outside cabin B-13. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Rocket Dog Rescue is a Bay Area organization that works to save dogs from death at overcrowded shelters and put them into happy homes. If you're looking to adopt or have some extra cash you feel like donating, go to rocketdogrescue.org. That's R-O-C-K-E-T-D-O-G-R-E-S-C-U-E dot O-R-G. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. For the safety of your smile, use Pepsodent twice a day. See your dentist twice a year. Lever 
Brothers Company presents the Pepsodent Program, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin. <laughs> Philip Marlowe, the screen's most famous private detective, created by Raymond Chandler, brought to you on the air by Pepsodent, and starring MGM's brilliant and dynamic young actor, Van Heflin. <laughs> Now families all over America have named their favorite toothpaste. New Pepsodent with Irium. New, fresh-tasting Pepsodent with the new, cool, minty flavor. Yes, in a recent test, New Pepsodent was preferred three to one over any other toothpaste. It's true. With families all over America, New Pepsodent is the favorite three to one. Families from coast to coast recently compared New Pepsodent with the toothpaste they were using at home. They preferred New Pepsodent by an overwhelming average of 3 to 1 over any other brand they tried. These families, 3 to 1, said New Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, makes teeth brighter. Yes, in a recent survey, families 3 to 1 said New Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, makes teeth brighter. Get New Pepsodent toothpaste for your family right away. Now, the adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin. I believe. That's right. My name is Wadsworth Jeter. How do you do, Mr. Jeter? You're a private detective? Well, why not? Frankly, sir, I'd expected the Hollywood detective's office to be somewhat more glamorous or rather more elegant, shall we say? Well, Philo Vance has a branch office here on the fourth floor. If you're shopping oh, around... No, no, can... no, no. You'll do, I'm sure. Well, my rate is 25 bucks a day, plus expenses. Money is no object. Except when you don't have much of it. That seems to be the motivating philosophy where Miss Harriet Huntress is concerned. Who or whom is Miss Harriet Huntress? A rather standard, rather obvious gold digger who wishes to marry Grover. Hmm. You want to tell me who Grover is? Grover is my adopted stepson, my late wife's son. Uh, go on. Next year, he will inherit a million dollars left him by his mother. Which explains Miss Huntress's interest in Grover. Precisely. Hmm. Look, Mr. Jader, am I being hired to smear Miss Harriet Huntress? Not at all. Merely to disillusion Grover about her. Yeah, well, that's the same thing. I think you'd better find yourself another no, boy. Wait, wait, there's more. Okay, let's hear it. Do you know a man named Marty Estelle? Sure, he's a big-time gambler out on Sunset Strip. Why? Mr. Estelle claims my son Grover owes him $50,000. Well, then Grover'd better pay up if I know Marty Estelle. But suppose my son doesn't really owe Estelle the money. Does he or doesn't he? Mr. Estelle supplied photostat copies of Grover's notes with Grover's signatures. I thought they might be forged, so without Grover's knowledge, I took them to a handwriting expert named John Arbogast, a sort of detective. No. He's not sure. He wants more time. I... I'd like you to take over the case. 
Harriet Huntress and all. Miss Huntress, as you may know, is associated with Mr. Estelle. Well, that's incidental. I'll handle the forgery case and not the slander job. Now, where does this Arbogast have his office? On Sunset near Iva. Okay, I'll look it up. Miss Huntress, she lives at the El Milano on North Sycamore. All right, I'll look her up, too. Arbogast and Huntress in the order named. no snooty secretary to prevent me from walking right into John D. Arbogast's extremely fat presence on Sunset near Ivar. He was an enormously fleshy gent with a thick neck that was in folds like a concertina. He wore a wrinkled dark suit that needed cleaning and some reweaving where it had some small holes in it. Arbogast just sat and stared at me with the whites of his eyes because those three holes that needed reweaving were bullet holes. And John D. Arbogast was dead, very recently dead. I left in a hurry, and as far as I could tell, nobody saw me come, nobody saw me go. My next stop was the Swank El Milano Hotel on North Sycamore. Just a second, mister. Something you want? Yeah, yeah, who are you? I'm the house detective. Well, I'm looking for a Miss Harriet Huntress. Miss Huntress ain't seeing anyone. You can tell her it's Marty Estelle. Are you Marty Estelle? I'm from him. That's different, ain't it? That's none of your business, is it? Well, whatever you're up to, you're not playing it very smooth. Well, some days I feel like playing it smooth, and some days I feel like playing it like a waffle iron. Well, if you must know, I'm one of the boys. Philip Marlowe, private eye. Here. It's my card. Yeah, well, that's another story. I'll phone up to Miss Hunter. Yeah, uh, say I'm from Marty Estelle, and that make it convincing, huh? Uh, how much convincing? Oh, well, how much do those cigars you're smoking cost you? Twenty-two fifty, box of fifty. That much convincing? Well, that's cute. You and me are going to get along. I'll phone Miss Huntress, but you go right on up. Room eight one four. I just know it'll be all right. <laughs> was too tall to be cute, too beautiful to be really cheap. Her green eyes were wide set and there was plenty of thinking room between them. Her hair was a dusky red, like fire seen through a haze. The green eyes were that much green ice as she sized me up in the doorway. Well, what's the big message, Sonny? I'd have to come in. I never could speak very well in public. Come in. Never could speak very well on a dry throat, either. There's the scotch. Help yourself. Thank you. So, you're from Marty Estelle? No, not uh, strictly, not even loosely. <laughs> not at all, in fact. What's your racket? No racket. Marty will love to know you used his name. I'm shaking in my shoes. You're some kind of detective, aren't you? Yeah, I'm Philip Marlowe. It's good scotch, Jim. I'm glad you like it. Now, what's your business? All right. How much will you take to give up Grover? You look smart, but you talk stupid. Old man Jeter's pretty tough. His idea is that you get nothing. You get smeared. I don't see it that way. How much? How about $50,000? How about $500? How about talking about the effect of the rain on the rhubarb? Now, look, sister. Suppose we skip the footwork, considering the sobering fact that a man named John D. Arbogast has already been murdered in this little case. Does that have anything to do with me? I don't know. 
He was hired to analyze some notes Grover gave Marty Estelle. He was killed just after I took over the case. Do you think Marty Estelle works that way? You know him better than I do, does he? Have you told the police yet? No, I thought I'd see if I could make a deal with you first. I'm going to tell you something. My people were nice people who never got involved in murders. Old Jeter ruined my father. My dad shot himself and my mother died of the shock. I'm going to fix Jeter for that someday, even if I have to marry his son to do it. Adopted stepson really has no relation at all. It'll hurt Jeter just as hard. And the kid will have a million dollars next year. I could do worse, even if he does drink too much. You wouldn't want Grover to hear that now, would you? No. Turn around and have a look, Gumshoe. I turned fast. He stood about four feet from me. Big, blonde, powerful. Whiskey in his brain and blood in his eyes. <laughs> I can say anything I want around Grover. It's all right with him. Isn't it, Grover? That's right, Harry. He's trying to break us up, Grover. What do you think of that? I think maybe I better break him up. That's what I think of that. <laughs> She laughed, and that made me mad. I turned to growl at her. It was a dirty look. It was the look of the month. That was a mistake. The big guy hit me. I went over sideways. It wasn't a hard punch, but my head hit a desk going down, and the desk got the decision. It gets dark fast in Southern California, but seldom that fast. Sucker puncher and Harriet Huntress were gone. But the bottle of scotch was still there, so I took that for a souvenir and stuffed it in my pocket and floated down the elevator into the street. It was dark by the time I got back to my apartment on Hobart Avenue in Hollywood. I turned on the light, and there stood a big guy, another big guy. This was National Big Guy Week. This one had a big nose, the dead color of wax. And he had a twenty-two caliber Colt Woodsman pointed straight at me. Close the door and reach. Come on. I turned a little to close the door. I got my hand under my coat. Then I turned back to Waxnose fast. I had my luger out. We stood there facing each other. Waxnose didn't seem at all impressed with my automatic. I uh, just came to tell you to be smart. You're looking at a luger, mister. Yeah, I know. Men of distinction carry Lugers. Me, I pack this small bore because I can shoot. If uh, you think you can take me, go to it. Look, what's the game? Uh, Maybe you can take a hint and maybe you can. Maybe and maybe not. What is it? Lay off old cheaters, boy. Well, I wouldn't think of contradicting anyone who uses a Colt Woodsman twenty-two with the front sight filed off must think he's pretty good. I am good. Yeah, and that's why I say, okay, pal. We'll see. Speaking of 22s, do you know anybody named John Arbogast? Uh, I meet such a lot of people. Well, this one was fat and shot three times with a 22. I don't remember shooting no fat guys today. So long, chum. Remember what I told you. Lay off, Grover. So long, chum. Yeah. Swell. Ah, oh, shut up. Yeah. Mr. Marlowe? 
Oh, Mr. Jeter. Well, your son or your adopted son or your stepson or whatever he is poked me in the jaw today. He is both my stepson and my adopted son. Well, both of them poked me in the jaw. My word, where? In Miss Huntress's apartment. You spoke to her? What did she say? She wants 50 grand and no dice. I offered her 500. Just as a gag. Just as a gag? Mr. Marlowe, perhaps you underestimate the importance of this matter Listen, to me. Listen, Mr. Jeter, there are some very unusual angles to this case. For example... A gunman just stuck me up in my own apartment and told me to stay off of this case. What? I don't see why this case should get so tough. Good heavens. Listen, Mr. Marlowe, my chauffeur, Waldo, will pick you up in my limousine. I want to talk to you. All right. I'll tell Waldo to park on Hobart facing Franklin. He'll be around for you in 20 minutes. Good. Just give me time to drink my dinner. Bye-bye. something happened. Someone was standing in the glare of our headlights. Waldo swore and slammed on the brake shelf. You stupid go and get out of the driveway. The man stepped toward us. And the next minute, there was that same Colt 22 staring to my face again. All right, this is a heist. Get out of the car, both of you. Look, Waxnose, haven't you had enough fun for one night? Fuzz off, bum. Shut up and get out. I'd have to think some more on that, Buster. I'm warning you, I'll let you have it. Don't be a goon, you're going. All right, you asked for it. Hey! Holy. You shot the guy. Yeah. I shot him. It was this. All in fun. Uh, yeah, some fun. It did the work. Uh, Jeter's house is right ahead. You sound as if you just shot a nickel and a pinball machine instead of a man. Now listen, turn off those lights and let's get out of here, but fast. You are listening to The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin. Yes, families all over America have named their favorite toothpaste. New Pepsodent with invigorating irium foam. New, fresh-tasting Pepsodent with a new, cool, minty flavor. In a recent test, new Pepsodent was preferred three to one over any other toothpaste. It's true. Families all over America say new Pepsodent is their favorite three to one. The William Kilpatrick family, 212 South Missouri, Claremore, Oklahoma, preferred new Pepsodent on every single count. The Kilpatricks say new Pepsodent tastes best of all, makes breath cleaner, makes teeth brighter. On all these counts, by an overwhelming average of three to one, families prefer new Pepsodent over any other toothpaste they tried. It's a fact. Families three to one say new Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, and makes teeth brighter. Remember, this is not just our opinion. It's the honest conviction of the Kilpatricks and other families who are asked to compare new Pepsodent with the toothpaste they were using at home. Get new Pepsodent, the only toothpaste containing irium. Get it for your family without delay. We continue with the adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin, who appears by arrangement with Metro-Golden-Mare, producers of The Romance of Rosie Ridge, starring Van Johnson. Thank you. 
and I drove back to my apartment again, leaving Waxnose lying dead in the Jeter driveway. We went back to my place to start all over again, over what was left of my purloined scotch. Yeah, this is good scotch you've got here, Marlowe. Pinch bottle. Not this. Sure, I pinched it from the apartment of Harriet Huntress. <laughs> well, bottoms up. Waldo, do you think that gunman was there to scare young Grover into realizing Marty still means business? Could be. I always drove Grover home around that time. Uh, it just doesn't sound like Marty is still to pick that sort of a helper. Well, sure. Maybe that's why he picked him. Because it didn't seem like Marty is still. Yeah. Uh, that's good thinking, Waldo. Dartmouth, 37. Ra, ra, ra. That would be either the cops or Mr. Jeter. Hello. Mr. Mono? Yes, Mr. Dieter, and the reason we're not in your study now is lying outside of your front gate. What's that you're saying? Somebody jumped us outside of your gate and Wallo shot him dead. Good Lord. Yeah. Listen, Marlowe, come here at once. Do you hear at once? I'll send Waldo, Mr. Jeter. I want to see you, you. Waldo will tell you all about it, Mr. Jeter. Marlowe. Good night, Mr. Jeter. After Waldo, the chauffeur, had left, I went back to the El Milano Hotel. Hawkins, the house stick, was all smiles and open palms. I placed no confidence in his smile and a $20 bill in his palm. <laughs> Harriet Huntress again? Uh, what's the matter? Just take me up to her apartment, that's all, huh? Yeah, sure. Right this way, fella. Hawkins took me to the eighth floor, room 814, and opened the door. There was someone in the room, waiting. Uh, here's company for you, Mr. Estelle. Beat it, Hawkins. Yeah, this is the guy I was telling you about, Mr. Estelle. Come in earlier today. Said he was from you. Beat it, I said. Oh, sure, sure. Come on in, Marlowe. I came to see Miss uh, Huntress, not you, Estelle. Well, first of all, Harriet's not home. I came to tell her what happened outside of Jeter's Gate. Mm. So you keep informed. I can't wait for her any longer. Got to get back to the casino. Well, then, what did you come back for, Marlowe? I'm looking for the Jeter boy. After what happened to him tonight, he needs somebody to walk behind him. You think I'd play games like that? All I know is we were shot at. I asked you a question. I answered it to the best of my knowledge. What knowledge, for example? Well, for example, you hold $50,000 worth of Grover's notes for gambling debts. I've got $50,000 invested in the kid. Would I be likely to bump him off? Ah. That makes sense, all right. I always make sense. Oh, bully for you. When I have 50 grand invested in a guy, I'm apt to find out all about him. Like about old Jeter hiring a man named Arbogast to work for him. Uh-huh. Arbogast was shot today. You know it. I know because I had you followed. You didn't tell the law, Marlowe. That could be very hard on you. Well, it could. Does that make you and me friends? Hmm. A little blackmail, huh? Not much. We'll call it, uh, tattletale grail mail. <laughs> From now on, do you stop bothering, Miss Huntress? Yeah, you win, Marty. Well, that's all. I've got to go. Well, I'll just, uh, wait around for bed, okay? Well, Harriet Scotch is in that cabinet there. Thanks, I'll roll up my pants and go waiting in it. <laughs> you know, Marla, I like you. You're cute. <laughs> so long, Shabbat. Marty Estelle was right. He wouldn't kill anybody who owed him money and was soon to come into a lot of it. 
Now I was in bed with the police for not reporting Arbogast's murder. Well, I looked around Harriet's apartment vaguely, walked into the bedroom, and stopped. Because mixed with the fragrance of good perfume and good cosmetics was the plain, ordinary, homespun odor of gunpowder. I walked across the room and yanked open the closet door and stepped back. There, just as big as life, but as dead as they ever come, was young Grover Jeter. And at Grover's feet, among the graceful shoes in Harriet's closet, was a tiny pearl-handled automatic. I felt bad about that. Because I guessed that the dainty holes, the bullets from that dainty gun, would fit the two dainty holes over Grover's heart. I put the neat little pistol in my pocket. I, um, I thought old man Jeter ought to know about his son, I thought... I didn't expect to find Waldo, the chauffeur, and Harriet Huntress with old Jeter in Jeter's big study, but there they were. Why, Mr. Marlowe, I'd about given up hoping to see you tonight. Well, I changed my mind about coming out again, Mr. Jeter. Hello, Waldo. Hi, Marlowe. Didn't expect to see you here, Miss Huntress. Didn't you? Did you expect to see me here? Never mind that, Marlowe. I want to know where my son is. What do you mean, Mr. Jeter? He's missing. That's what I mean. Oh. Hmm. He's missing and no one knows where he is. I know. Hey? What's that? Where, Marlo? Miss Huntress, where did you and Grover go after Grover took that sucker punch at me in your apartment? We went out together in a taxi. During the ride, I had a change of heart. I didn't want Grover or Grover's money. I told Grover to find another playmate and I got out in Beverly Hills. Grover went on in the taxi. And where did you go? Back to my apartment. Later, I got out my car to come down here and tell Mr. Jeter I decided to forget the whole thing. For him to call off his dime novel salute. Well, a dime will no longer buy a novel of any description, but that is beside the point. You said you knew where Grover is. That's not beside the point, is it, Mr. Mallow? He's back in Harriet's apartment. Well, I didn't let him in. How on earth could he be? Hawkins, your house detective let him in. The last I saw of Grover, he was dead. Oh, what? What's that? Dead. Dead, shot with a small caliber gun. I can't believe it. I, I can't. It's... Grover, it's... dead? Miss Huntress, this twenty-five caliber pistol was on the floor at Grover's feet. Here, take it. Look it over, will you? It's mine. You murderous. You... I'm not. You, you cold-blooded murderous. Oh, stop that. Stop it, both of you. It could have been suicide. Suicide? Well, yes. That's a possibility, of course. I see you like that idea, Jeter. But it wasn't suicide. Then she did it. The murderous, the scheming, contemptible... It was murder, and it's fairly obvious who did it, Jeter. Eh? Uh, Marty Estelle is my guess. Well, guess again, Waldo. Estelle had $50,000 invested in Grover. He wouldn't kill a golden goose like that. And Waxnose didn't do it because he was dead, thanks to Waldo here. That means her. She did it. There had to be a motive and an opportunity. Well, it was her apartment after all. Correct, Waldo. But Grover was Jeter's adopted stepson. Oh, like a real son he was to me. A real son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But did you lovely people know that in the state of California, a man can inherit from an adopted son who has money and who gets dead? Did you know that, Mr. Jeter? Why, what do you mean? You're inheriting Grover's million dollars would be a motive for killing him, wouldn't it? Mr. Marlowe. That was the motive, Jeter, and it was Waldo's job to find the opportunity to murder Grover for you. All right, Marlowe. That'll be all for you. Well, Waldo, the Dartmouth gun fanner. Huh? Drop that gun, Waldo. Shut up. I said drop it. Oh, drop uh, it. Uh, 
Hey, that's nice shooting, Harriet. My hand, my hand. Now, Papu, put a little Band-Aid on for you, Waldo. Waldo, you could have gotten into my apartment wearing that chauffeur's uniform. Uh, you could have gone into the garage entrance and up the back way. Sure. When Grover let him in, he backed Grover into the room with his gun, but he shot him with yours. How much was Jeter going to pay you for this job, Waldo? Don't talk, Waldo. He's bluffing. You're telling me he's bluffing. Nice kids, these college boys. Tell me, was it Dartmouth or Danamora, Waldo? Shut up, copper. You killed John Arbogast to throw suspicion on Marty Estelle. Then you hired Waxnose to fake a holdup on Grover. Why? Again, to throw suspicion on Marty Estelle. To make it look as though Estelle was trying to stay, scare Grover into paying his gambling debts. If I hired Waxnose, why would I have shot him tonight? Because you like to kill people, Waldo. When I was brought out here tonight, Waxnose thought I was Grover in the car. He began to fake his holdup. But you just couldn't resist taking one of your snappy snapshots at Waxnose, could you, Waldo? Shut up, could you? Next, Mr. Wadsworth Jeter. Look here, Mallow. You you can't accuse me of... of... Doctor, he's sick. Call a doctor. Call a... It's his heart. If Jeter dies, it's your fault, Marlowe. Okay, Waldo. Tell you what I'll do, Waldo. If Jeter dies, he doesn't have to pay me my fee. We're even. Okay, Waldo? Harry Angel, listen, go call a doctor. And uh, while you're there, call the law, huh? Peter didn't die. His heart was as good as mine, if you want to make anything out of that. The law had Jeter and Waldo cold, and I mean cold. Me? Well, I went out a couple of times with Harriet as I sat home with her a couple of times drinking her scotch. It was nice, all right, but I didn't have the money or the clothes or the manners. Still, I was sorry when she went to New York to live. She had absolutely the best scotch I ever tasted. Maybe because it was free. I don't know. just heard Van Heflin starring in the mystery series Raymond Chandler's The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, brought to you by the Lever Brothers Company, makers of Pepsodent. Van Heflin will return in just a moment. Have you tried, have you tasted the new Pepsodent toothpaste? Its lingering minty flavor is so fresh and inviting, families prefer it by an overwhelming average of three to one over any other toothpaste they tried. In a recent nationwide test, these families said new Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, and makes teeth brighter. Remember, new Pepsodent gives you more invigorating irium foam. It sweeps dulling film away. No wonder it's the three-to-one favorite with families all over America. Get new Pepsodent with irium for your family right away. The need for food in Europe tonight is desperate. Starvation faces a multitude of our fellow men. There's a way you can help. For $10, a package containing 21 and a half pounds of food will be sent for you to a friend or a relative or any member of an organization you designate in Europe. Or simply say to a little French girl or to a Belgian war widow. Your order will be strictly respected and you'll receive a signed receipt from the person who received your gift. Send $10 now. Send all you can. Send your $10 to CARE. C-A-R-E. CARE, New York. 
Help keep America the hope of the world. Tonight's story was adapted by Milton Geiger from the story Trouble is My Business by Raymond Chandler, creator of Philip Marlowe, the screen's most famous private detective. The original music was composed and conducted by Lynn Murray. This is Wendell Niles inviting you to listen again next week at this same time to another exciting mystery on the adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin with a distinguished cast. NBC, the national broadcasting company. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to providing and delivering the nutritious meals that are necessary to prevent the premature institutionalization of San Francisco's homebound elderly. They are committed to fostering independent living with dignity for as long as possible. For more information, please call 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to burglary detail. A gang of hijackers has started to work in your city. Truckloads of valuable merchandise have vanished. The thieves are clever, seem to have a foolproof system. Your job, find them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday, March 6th. It was windy in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of burglary detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from the record bureau, and it was 5.35 a.m. when I got to room 2A. Interrogation room. Read this to him, Ben. Yeah. 2,600 dozen nylon stockings, 45 bolts of silk... 58 cases imported perfume. Where are you dumping this stuff, Laval? That's what we want to know. I told you the truth. I have nothing to do with it. I don't know anything about it. What was this stolen waybill doing in the cab of your truck? How many times do I have to tell you? I don't know. Your fingerprints are all over it. You must have carried it there. I didn't carry it there. Somebody's out to frame me. How many in the hijack gang, Laval? I'm not in a hijack game. I told you I don't know. When are you going to let me go? Who's the head of the gang? I don't know any head of the gang. I want to get out of here. You're covering for somebody. I'm not covering for anybody. You take the rap for all this, you're going to have a beard down to your knees by the time you get out. I'm not taking any rap. Then let's have it. 
I'm tired. $42,000 worth. You know who took it, you know where it is. They could have disappeared anywhere on the way from the east to the, the thousand places. Nothing was missing from those shipments when they came in on the train. Everything was there when they were unloaded at the warehouse. Then they don't know. I don't know. Every dollar's worth was accounted for when it was loaded on the truck. Well, where is it now? I'm tired. We've been here all night. Let me... Well, let me read it for you again. Twenty-six hundred dozen nylon stockings, 45 bolts of silk, 58 cases imported perfume. And you're trying to tell us somebody hijacked all that from the trucks without you knowing it? The trucks were loaded at the warehouse. We went out to eat. We came back, got in the trucks, delivered the stuff, and that's all I know. And while you were out eating, the receipts for the load disappeared, too. Is that right, Lavelle? I don't know where the way bills are to shipping truck. That's his job. We talked to him. He says one of you could have taken the way. And well, then he's lying. I didn't take him. Then what was this way bill doing in the cab of your truck? I told you, I don't know. Somebody's trying to frame me. Why? I don't know. Somebody, I don't know why. Then you better come up with an answer, mister. Look, I'm tired. We've been here since six o'clock last night. We're all tired. Who are you covering for? What are you trying to build? Any of that coffee left, Ben? It's cold. That's all right. You want some, Laval? No. All right, now look, let's get one thing straight. We've been here all night. We can be here all day, tomorrow, the day after that, and the day after that. Yeah. we got enough to make you on this. You know that. And we're going to stay with you to tell us the truth. Everything. I've told you all I'm going to tell you. If we stay here for six months, you got it all. This your home phone, Hillside 8321. That's right, 8321. What time's your wife get up, Laval? What do you mean? Ben, get an outside line. Yeah. You're not going to call my home. That's Hillside 8321, Ben. Outside, please. Don't do that. Don't. Not my wife. Please. All right. Ask the questions again. This time I'll give you the answers. Thomas Laval was 38 years old. He was a well-respected man in his community. Sometimes it's like that. You can question a man for hours and he'll never give you any information. But somewhere in every man's makeup, there's a weak point. We were lucky enough to find Laval's. He told us that he would give us the locations where the hijacked goods were hidden. He told us the addresses were written on the ledge of a windowsill on the seventh floor of the Teamsters Union Hall. It was 8.30 a.m. On the seventh floor, is that right? Yeah. Do me a favor. Don't make it too big. Well, look, we have to walk through the hiring hall before we get to the elevators in the back. Yeah? These handcuffs... They'll see them, all the guys in the hall. They know me. Can't you take them off my wrist till we get in the elevator? Sorry, LaBelle. Well, I won't try anything, but don't make me walk in front of them with these on. Sorry. Just till we get in the elevator. Can't you do that? I, I don't want the guys to see me. Well, here's my overcoat, LaBelle. Drape it over your hands here, and they won't see the cuffs. There you are. Come on. Hi, Tom. How are you? Hi. What's new, Tom? Not much. Let's take the elevator. Yeah. Cigarette? No, thanks. You? Yeah. Okay. 
Thanks. It's down this way. Let me show you. To the left. A window up ahead there. One. I don't see anything on the window sill. It's on the outside. Open the window and let me check. Yeah. Let me see you. Ben, grab him. He's trying to jump. Hey, get back here. Get back. Let go to you here. Let me go. Get him, Joe. I can't hold him. He's pulling me out. Hold on, Ben. Grab me. Joe. Joe. He's slipping. Try, Joe. Hold on. He's kicking loose. I can't hold him. Hold him, Joe. Ben. I couldn't hold him. You almost went with him. Let's get downstairs. What happened? Call an ambulance. There's been an accident. Thomas Laval was 38 years old. He was a well-respected man in his community. He died with the same reputation. We had a prisoner who'd met his death while in our custody. In cases like this, we had to have witnesses. By the time we got to the street, the usual accident crowd had gathered... Anybody here see the accident? What you want, witnesses? Yeah. Did you see it? Yeah, we saw it. Let's get their names, Ben. My name's Pete Garfield. This is Jack Morris. We'll be your witnesses. You'll probably be subpoenaed for the inquest tomorrow morning. Sure, we'll be there. We saw you push the guy out the window. We saw you kill him. The next morning at 10 a.m. in the basement of the Hall of Justice, Harold J. Lane, deputy coroner, city and county of Los Angeles, read the report of the findings of the autopsy on the body of the deceased Thomas Laval. As is customary at a coroner's inquest, the identification witness was called to testify first. Elizabeth Laval, please. Raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Yes. Be seated. State your name. Elizabeth Laval. What is your address? 1216 East Amarillo Drive. What is your occupation? I'm a housewife. What is your relation to the deceased? His wife. Have you viewed the body of the deceased in this office? Yes. Who was the deceased? Husband. Thomas Laval. Is there anything further you wish to add? Thank you. Step down, please. Joseph Friday. Raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth will help you, God? I do. Be seated. State your name. Joe Friday. What is your address? 4656 Collis Avenue. What is your occupation? I'm a police officer in and for the city of Los Angeles. Are you the investigating and arresting officer on this case? I am. Will you state briefly the facts relating to the death of the deceased? <clears throat> on the morning following the arrest by us of the deceased on suspicion of grand theft merchandise, he expressed a desire to assist us in the apprehension of suspects involved in these thefts and the recovery of property taken in them. Did he assist you? Well, he informed us that if we took him to the Teamsters Union Hall, that he'd be able to obtain addresses of the locations where the stolen property was cached. You then took him there? Yes, we did. What happened? When we arrived, he requested us to remove his handcuffs. 
We refused. The deceased then informed us that the addresses were written on a window ledge on the seventh floor. When we arrived at the window, under the pretense of searching for the addresses, he threw himself over the ledge. I grabbed his left leg to restrain him, but he kicked loose. Uh, did you at any time have any idea that the deceased planned such action? I did not. What did you do then? We immediately went to the location of the body and had an ambulance dispatched. Do you have anything further to state? No, I have not. Are there any questions from the jury? That's all, Officer Friday. Step down. Peter Garfield. Raise your right hand. Yeah. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Yeah. Be seated. State your name. Pete Garfield. What is your address? 1654 North Pico. What is your occupation? Truck driver. Down at General Warehouse. Did you know the deceased? Yeah. How did you know him? I worked with him. And that cop's a liar, and so is his buddy sitting over there. Please confine the testimony of this inquest to facts. Were you present at the time the deceased met his death? I told you I was. And those two cops pushed Tom out of the window. Where were you at the time the deceased was pushed or jumped from the window? Jack and I just left the union hall. We were going out the front door when it happened. What attracted your attention? I heard him scream. When I looked up, Tom was falling. That cop was standing at the window watching him. Did you see the officer push him? Yes, I saw him. Did I understand you to say you were on the street outside the building at the time? Yeah. And you saw the officers push the deceased from the window on the seventh floor from your vantage point? Yeah. Isn't it true that that's a physical impossibility? What is? That you could have seen what you testified to from where you were standing. I know they pushed it. You know or you saw? I know, that's all. Tom wouldn't jump out of a window. Then it's true you didn't see the officers push the deceased out of the window? No, I didn't see him. Is there anything further you'd like to add? They must have pushed him. Any question from the jury? That's all, Garfield. Step down. Dorothy River. Raise your right hand. Yes. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you, God? I do. Be seated. State your name. Dorothy River. What is your address? 211 South Beverly Drive. And what is your occupation? I'm a stenographer at the Teamsters Union Hall. Were you present the morning the deceased met his death? I was. State where you were and what you were doing. I was in our office on the seventh floor doing some filing. Please state what you witnessed. The filing cabinet in our office is by the door. The office faces on the hallway and the door happened to be open. I heard a commotion and looked out. I saw those two officers struggling with a man. Did you hear any conversation? Yes. I heard that officer there say, Get back here, get back. The man outside the window yelled, Let me go, let me go. This officer here, Officer Friday, said, He's pulling me out. Hold on, Ben, grab me. How far from the window were you? I'd say about... Fifteen feet. Do you have anything else to add? Yes. As the two policemen started downstairs, Officer Friday said to me, 
Call an ambulance. There's been an accident. Thank you, Miss River. Those officers didn't push that man out the window. They were trying to hold him. After hearing additional witnesses, the coroner's jury retired at 11.57 a.m. Eight minutes later, they returned with their decision. The deceased met his death voluntarily and by his own actions. The homicide detail continued the investigation of Laval's death. A week went by. With homicide working one side, we hoped that they might turn up additional leads in the hijacking case. Nothing turned up. It seemed that with the death of Thomas Laval, our leads came to an abrupt stop. On Tuesday morning, March 16th at 9 a.m., we got a call from Chief of Detectives Ed Backstrand. Now, once more, what about the weight bills on these shipments? You checked them? Everything we could. Talk to everybody and handle them. And talk to them some more. $42,000 in merchandise doesn't just disappear. Now, who's the last one to handle those weight bills? The warehouse shipping clerk. The bills were signed and stamped. Two hours after he filed them in his desk, they disappeared. What about the truck drivers? You checked them out? Talked to all of them. Nothing so far. Nothing was missing from those shipments until they left the warehouse. Is that right? Yeah. And somewhere in between the warehouse and the delivery points, $42,000 worth of goods disappeared. Somebody's got to be hijacking those loads. We know that. But how do we get to it? Maybe they're working alone. Maybe they're working with the truck drivers. It's one of the others. Got to be. We just hadn't lost Laval. Well, you lost him. That doesn't close the case. You got a suggestion? Yeah, I got a suggestion. Crack it. You are listening to Dragnet, authentic stories from official police files. And now, an important announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, we are pleased to announce that starting next Thursday, October 6th, Dragnet will be brought to you by Fatima Cigarettes. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank you, the listener, for your excellent response to our efforts in bringing you these weekly authentic presentations of actual cases from official files. Your letters are the only indications we have that Dragnet is a source of your listening pleasure. We'd like to hear from all of you. Starting next Thursday, October 6th, over most of these same NBC stations, Dragnet will be heard weekly at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, immediately following the Supper Club. Check your newspaper for local release time. We stayed on the job. Another week went by. No leads. We spent so much time at the general warehouse where the merchandise disappeared that we almost got to be a part of the crew. We got to know everybody. We made frequent visits to the Teamsters Union Hall. It got us nothing. On Wednesday, March 26th, we reported in for work at 8 a.m. Friday, Romero. Yes, Skipper? You fooled around just long enough. They hijacked another load last night. $38,000. What outfit? Same. General warehouse. Who's your contact down there? Ray Hobart, shipping clerk. And hop down there right now and get the details. Right, Ed. There are two ways to solve this thing. Yeah? You can get those hijackers now or wait till General Warehouse goes out of business. Get on it. Hobart, who was the shipping clerk on duty last night? I was, uh, working for Siggy, Siegelmeister. He's out of the cold. And you saw the stuff was loaded on the trucks and you checked the way bill. Yeah, as usual. Everything as usual. Uh, checked the trucks out at 2 a.m., went back to the office, filed the way bills. You work a pretty heavy schedule, Hobart. You started at 2 a.m. and you're still on duty? Uh, it took the last four hours of Siggy's shift at 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. He had a cold. I was back here at 10 this morning to start my own shift. When did you find out the way bills were missing on that shipment last night? Uh, just before I went off. Maybe... Uh, Half past five, quarter to six. Well, how about the truck drivers who handled that load, Hobart? You got them? Uh, let's see. I got it right here. Okay. Oh, uh, here you go, Sergeant. 
Jack Morris and Pete Garfield. Jack Morris and Pete Garfield were brought in for questioning. We double-checked with Homicide and found that their reports on Morris and Garfield tallied with ours. No previous records. Both men had been tailed for a reasonable length of time since their testimony at the Laval inquest. Their actions failed to implicate them. Four days after the second hijacking, we got a tip from one of our informants down in the warehouse district. He told us that a man in a gray suit had been hanging around the coffee shop next to the Teamsters Union Hall. He was peddling nylon stockings, cheap. There had been other reports like this, which we had followed up, but none of them had paid off. Usually, such leads didn't pay off, but we couldn't be sure. They had to be checked. At a few minutes before five that afternoon, we found the nylon salesman in the gray suit in the back booth of the coffee shop adjoining the Union Hall. Look, man. Take a look. Sign it. You can't do better. 51 gauge nylon. Look good, huh? Mm, sure do, don't you, Joe? Yeah, they do. We've been looking for you, Max. Some of the guys in the Union Hall said that you'd be around. Sure, I saw lots of these around the hall. Truck drivers, just like you, buying them like crazy. Good deal. Sure looks like it, man. How many pair can we have? Many as you want. Four bits a pair, you name it. You got a couple of dozen for us? A couple of dozen? No, not on me, but I can get them. Many as you want. Well, we're kind of in a hurry. Can you get them for us fast? A couple of dozen. Better make it three dozen, huh, Joe? Yeah, if you want. Three dozen. Can you get them now? A couple of hours I can get them. Same quality. Want to meet me here? Oh, I don't know. We wanted them for tonight. My wife's birthday, you know. Well, maybe an hour and a half. How's that? Three dozen. Meet you here. Oh, look, Mac. uh, Maybe we're both heading the same direction. Can we go with you and pick up the nylon? Save time for all of us. Uh, No, I don't think so. No. Can't you wait? Hour and a half. How's that? Never find a better buy. I'm sorry, Mac. I wish we had the time. Well, where do you have to go to pick up these nylons? Oh, way out. Sunset Boulevard near Fairfax. Can't you wait? I'll make it fast. Can't we pay you and then go out and pick them up ourselves? Huh? No. Don't work that way. No. Can't you wait here? I'll make it fast. We ought to be home now, Joe. Yeah, I'm sorry, mister. We'll have to skip it. Yeah, maybe we can pick up something on the way home, Ben. Candy or something. Wife likes candy. Now, uh, look, fellas, I... I don't want to see you lose out on this deal. I'll meet you halfway. How do you mean? Uh, look, together we'll go out to Sunset and Fairfax, huh? Near the place. You wait there at the hamburger stand. And in five minutes, I'll bring you the stuff, okay? Oh, I don't know. We're late already, but... All right, it's a deal. I'll call the wife and tell her we're going to be a little later. Three dozen, is that right? Three dozen are the best. You can't do better. All right, I'll be back in just a minute. Three. Chief of Detectives Office, Chandler. Mike, Joe Friday, Backstrand there? Out right now, Joe. Well, then do me a favor, Chandler. Make it fast. Get a couple of men out to Sunset and Fairfax as fast as you can. Tell them to watch for Ben and me. You got that? Yeah, what else? We'll drive up in our car with another man. Ben and I will get out of the car and go in the hamburger stand. The other man will walk off. Whoever you get, tell him to follow that man. You got it? Right. All right. Just tail him. See where he goes, see what he does. Okay, Joe, right away. All set, Joe? She got dinner ready? Yeah, just about. We better hustle. Sure. Best deal in the world. Let's go. At five minutes to six, we pulled up at the corner of Sunset Boulevard in Fairfax. It was almost dark. Ben and I got out of the car and started over for the hamburger stand on the corner. We caught a glimpse of Barcy and Kaplan in one of our detective cars parked in the gas station on the opposite corner. They had their eyes on our man. 
when the traffic signals changed, the man crossed the street and headed down Fairfax. Barcy and Kaplan waited a minute, and then they took off after him. He turned at the next corner and disappeared from sight. Ben and I ordered a cup of coffee, and we sat down to wait. At half past six, we were still waiting. At five minutes to seven, I went across the street to the drugstore and called the office. Barcy and Kaplan hadn't been heard from. Their car, 105K, was not acknowledging calls. I had my call switched from communications to Backstrand's office. Well, they lost him, Friday. I don't know how they lost him, but they lost him. Well, who's out there now? Sullivan and Whitney took a detail out there. They're combing the neighborhood right now. Well, how did it happen? A man just doesn't disappear into thin air. That's what I keep telling you about that stuff that's been hijacked. The search for the nylon salesman went on all that night and most of the next day. From his description, we ran a make on him. No previous record. He had disappeared completely. We were right back where we'd started from. The only thing we could do was to start backtracking, re-questioning the people at General Warehouse, the truck drivers, the shipping clerks. We kept a close check on Garfield and Morris, and, and we went back to the only possible lead still remaining, Mrs. Laval. She could tell us nothing more than we already knew. When we left her, we started on the neighbors for the second time around. For the rest of the day, we canvassed the immediate neighborhood. We got as many opinions of the Lavals as they had neighbors. At 3.30 that afternoon, we visited with Miss Gertrude Langster, a 50-year-old maiden lady who lived almost directly across the street from the Laval house. She'd been out of town the first time we covered the neighborhood. The old saying goes, Sergeant, there's no fool like an old fool. Oh, say, if I told you the chances I had when I was a girl... Yeah, but we just... Oh, not truck drivers like that. Laval man, God rest his soul. But fine, wealthy men, bankers, well, lawyers... Templeton Grant, you remember him? No, ma'am. I was engaged to him once. Butterfly waist. That's what he used to call me. Well, well, I was slim in those days. Would you like to see some pictures of me as a girl? No, no, thank you, ma'am. We'd just like to ask you a few questions, that's all. Could you tell us if the Lavals had many visitors to their house in the past six months or so? Oh, my no. Funniest thing, I am the nosy type, Sergeant. I like to know everything that goes on around my neighborhood. And you can take my word for it, the Lavals never had visitors. You know, Sergeant Friday, you remind me of a young man I used to be engaged to just a few years ago. Yes, Miss so... Langston. Now, would you tell us, please, uh, did you have any reason to think that there was something little out of the ordinary about the Laval? Oh, little out of the ordinary, he says, but my dear man, yes. Here he was, a truck driver, and there she was with a home furnished like the Astors. Why, well, I even used to see him cart some of the things home in that car. He has beautiful things, rugs and glassware, bolts of fabric. Oh, gorgeous. And he'd bring these things home after work. Is that it, Miss oh. Anytime, anytime. Day or night, weekends, anytime. Mm-hmm. After four, Joe, we better call office. Yeah. Now, are you sure of all that you've told us, Miss Langster? Sure. Oh, my dear man, of course I'm sure I watched him week after week. Well, thank well, you. Well, uh, won't you stay for a cup of tea? I'll have Josephine fix it. Josephine? Uh, no, thank you, ma'am. Well, then, uh, perhaps a glass of sherry? Thank you, no. But there is something. Yes? I wonder if we could use your phone, please. Oh, uh, Yes. In the hall, next to the umbrella stand. Thank you, ma'am. City Hall. Two five two three. Two five two three. Thanks, Trent. Friday, Ed. Nothing much here. Well, there's something here. Barcy and Captain just called. Pete Garfield left his house half an hour ago. Then he picked up Morris. What's so unusual about that? Nothing except the guy driving the car is the little man in the gray suit, the nylon salesman. Barcy and Kaplan are tailing him. Where are they now? Headed north out Riverside Drive. Well, there's nothing out there but a golf course and a lot of riding stables. I don't care what they do for recreation. Go get them. With red light and siren, it took us 12 minutes to pick up Barcy and Kaplan on Riverside Drive. 
At 4.23 p.m., we pulled up in front of the Blue Pony Riding Stables. Marcy and Kaplan's car was overturned just beyond the driveway leading up to the Riding Academy. Kaplan's hurt. I called an ambulance. They rammed us. What kind of a car are they in? They Swiss. They're driving a 12-ton Bulldog semi. Which way they head? Going north. Got a three-minute lead on you. Pneumatic commercial. Adam 653. Let's go, Ben. Can you see him, Joe? No, not yet. Watch that crossing. Up ahead, Joe. That's a semi. Can you read it? Wait a minute. Adam 653. That's them. Took a ride on Lancashire. Don't lose them. They're pushing that semi too hard. Look at that trailer sway. They'll have to stay on Lancashire. They're going too fast to turn now. Traffic's closing in up ahead of them. They better not turn. That's what they're doing. Look at that trailer whip. They're going over. Look at that truck front. Banged up, but they're alive. There they are, Joe. Yeah. Garfield, Morris, little man, and the grace of... It's funny, isn't it? What's that? Garfield's going to swear we pushed that truck through that window. The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Peter Garfield, Jack Morris, and John Dolfo, the stocking salesman, were hospitalized and later brought to trial. They were convicted on charges of grand theft and received sentences as prescribed by law. They are now serving their terms in the state penitentiary. You have just heard the 18th in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of acting chief of police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to motorcycle officer Elmer Forsman of the Fresno, California Police Department, who on the afternoon of October 6, 1946, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Remember, starting next Thursday night, October 6th, Fatima Cigarettes invite you to listen to Dragnet immediately following the Supper Club. That's 10.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time over most of these same NBC stations. Check your newspaper for local release time. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. Judy Canova joins the star lineup of Saturday shows tonight on NBC. Do you have a great idea for a product or service but don't know where to start? Are you looking to grow your current business? Women's Initiative in San Francisco began its business management training program for low-income, high-potential women in 1988 to attend a free orientation on how you can achieve your dream of starting your own business or for more information, please contact Sophia Campos at 415-641-3465. That's 415-641-3465. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes, best of long cigarettes, brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. 
You're assigned to homicide detail. A vicious killer has taken the life of a 62-year-old woman. Suspicion points in only one direction. The murderer was heartless, cold-blooded. Your job, get him. If you want a long cigarette, smoke the best of long cigarettes. Smoke Fatima. It's the long cigarette that contains an essential ingredient of all the very popular cigarettes, Turkish tobacco. That's why you see the turkey symbols on the attractive golden yellow Fatima package. That's why Fatima has a much different, much better flavor and aroma than any other long cigarette. That's why Fatima doubles and redoubles its smokers. Yes, if you want a long cigarette, smoke the best of long cigarettes. Smoke Fatima. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Saturday, November 5th. It was foggy in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. It was 3.35 p.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Long distance. This is Friday in Homicide. I'd like to place a call to Mr. Frank Renard in Murphy, Idaho, the number 761. Frank Renard, Murphy, Idaho, 761. Yeah, that's right. The call's been cleared with the business office. All right. Uh, do you want me to call you back, Sergeant? No, I'll hang on. Okay, I'll place it for you. Long distance. Long distance, Mr. Frank Renard, Murphy, Idaho, Murphy, 761. Thank you. You hang up, Connecticut. You're number three? Charge the call to Madison, 7961. Thank you. The time and charges on the call completed operator. Radar operator? Sergeant Friday, Los Angeles Police Department. I've got an urgent message for you. 
For me? Well, what's the matter? Well, your wife, Dolores, asked me to call you. Something's happened to your mother. What do you mean? What's happened? Well, I better let your wife tell you. She wants you back in Los Angeles right away. Look, what's this all about? I can't leave my job now. You better come. Your mother's been murdered. Talk to the skipper, Joe. He's on his way in. That's good. Did you call my husband? Did you? He's flying down from Idaho tonight. Be here in the morning. You tell him about me? The trouble I'm in? I told him his mother was murdered. That's all I told him, Mrs. Renard. What am I going to say to Frank? He always sided in with his mother. He'll never believe me. What can I tell him? Jury can give you more trouble than your husband can. What you going to tell them? Are you stupid or something? How many times do I have to say it? I didn't kill her. I didn't kill her. It's a small room, Mrs. Renard. We can hear you. Sit down, please. I won't sit down. You're not pinning this on me because I didn't do it. Anybody could have killed the old hag, but I didn't. Will you sit down, please? I don't have to take this. I'm no tramp. Keeping me in here, asking me questions. I told you all I know. Look, you're in a bad spot. I hope you realize that. I didn't kill her. Ms. Renard, how long have you and your mother-in-law been living together in the house on Chavez Road? Since Frank took the job up in Idaho. About six months. He said it'd be better for me while he was away living with her. Your neighbors told us you didn't get along very well with your mother-in-law. That's right, I didn't. She hated me, I hated her. You used to fight with her, is that right? You hit her. Only a couple of times. She called me dirty names. I hit her. She pulled me by the hair. And I hated her like everything. And I didn't kill her. Once more, Ms. Renard, would you mind telling us how you spent your time since early this morning, where you went, what you did, everything? I told you already everything. Will you tell us again, please? I got up about quarter to nine. I had a cup of coffee and then I got dressed. The old lady was on the back porch doing the washing. What did your mother-in-law do for a living? I told you. She took in washing. After I got dressed, I left the house. About ten minutes after nine, I went downtown to the dentist. He filled a tooth for me. This one here, you can ask him. What time did you leave the dentist's office? About quarter after ten. Maybe twenty after. You can ask him. What'd you do after that? I walked around window shopping. Did you buy anything? Talk to anybody? I told you no. What time did you get home? Half past twelve. I went in the bedroom. The old lady was on the floor. Blood all over. I felt her heart. It wasn't beating. Is that when you got the blood on your dress? Yeah. Now that's all I'm going to say. Three times I told you the same story already. And you still can't account for your time between 10.20 this morning and the time you found the body and called the police at 12.30. I told you. I left the dentist. I went window shopping. Then I walked home. And that time you didn't talk to anyone and no one saw you. Lots of people saw me. People on the street downtown. I'm no tramp. I don't talk to everybody. None of your neighbors saw you come home, Ms. Renard? Of course they didn't see me. I cut across the back lot up from San Jose Avenue. I came in the back way. The lady who lives next door to you. She says she was in the backyard about noontime. She stayed there till after 1 o'clock. She didn't see you come in the back way. And she's a liar. She's a dirty liar. You and your husband took out an insurance policy on your mother-in-law last year. Is that right, Ms. Renard? Sure it is. What of it? $5,000. Yeah, so what? You know a man by the name of George Martino? No. You better tell the truth, Ms. Renard. All right, so I do. He's a friend of mine. You've been running around with him since your husband's been away. None of your business. I do what I want. Your mother-in-law found out about Martino. That's what you fought about most of the time. Oh, she was crazy. He's a friend of mine, that's all. 
Are you telling the truth, Ms. Renard? Martino's a boyfriend of mine. I told you, that's all. Your mother-in-law found out you were running around with him. She warned you if you didn't shake Martino, she'd write your husband. You said you'd kill her if she did. That's a lie. That's what your mother-in-law told one of the neighbor ladies. And I said it just to scare her. One night I was drinking. We had a fight. She was yapping at me all night. I said it just to scare her. But she wrote the letter anyway. And that's what she said. But I didn't kill her. You had the time, the motive, and the opportunity. It wasn't me. I didn't kill her. Interrogation room, Friday. This is Brennan, Joe. Yeah, Bill. Where are you? Santa Monica. Picked up George Martino. Ben and I drove Mrs. Renard to Lincoln Heights Jail, fifth floor, and had her booked on suspicion of 187 PC. When we checked back in at the office, Brennan and Wiseman, the other two men on the case with Ben and I, were questioning George Martino in the interrogation room. Ben and I stood by. Martino admitted only two things. He had been running around with Mrs. Renard since her husband left town, and he had heard Mrs. Renard express a desire to do away with her mother-in-law. After the questioning of Martino, Sergeant Brennan, Ben and I met with Chief Ed Baxter. It was 5.15 p.m. You got everything but the murder weapon, huh? That and Mrs. Renard's confession. She ought to come through, huh, Joe? I don't know. She's scared, but she's still got a smart mouth. What about Martino, Brennan? You think he had a hand in it? I don't think so. We spent most of the afternoon talking to him. He hasn't got the guts. We took a statement. And does he have an alibi? Solid. What was the cause of death? Strangulation, multiple fractures of the skull. All motives are with Mrs. Renard, Chief. Pretty clear-cut job. No evidence of robbery or burglary, I guess. A couple of dresser drawers in the bedroom were emptied on the floor and clothes tossed all around. Pretty obvious plan to make it look like burglary. Maybe. We found three $1 bills in plain sight. They were on the floor near the body. If a burglar went through this stuff, he wouldn't have missed that money. And uh, it shouldn't be too much trouble tying it up. Shouldn't be, Skipper. And Friday and Romero, you follow the case through. Oh, just a minute. Hello. Backstrand. Yeah? What? All right, I'll send him over. Lee Jones. Just finished checking evidence at the crime lab. Yeah? He thinks Mrs. Renard's innocent. There they are, fellas. Facts don't lie. But she had every reason in the world to kill the old lady. In my book, she couldn't have killed her. All right, let's have it, Lee. How does the evidence add up? That's just it, Joe. It doesn't. Take a look. Right. Dress Mrs. Renard was wearing when she found the body. That's it. Blood smears near the hem. Two smears, that's all. Now, if she murdered her mother-in-law, there should be more blood on this dress. It shouldn't be smeared. How do you mean? First of all, the manner in which the old lady was killed. Head was battered in. Must have bled profusely. No question about that. All right, go ahead. Whoever murdered the old lady must have stains all over their clothes. Here's the important part. Because of the nature of the wound, it would have stained in drops, not smears. Well, how can you tell the difference? Maybe these are drop stains on her desk. They're not. I checked them with the microscope. Only the higher ribs of the cloth are stained. The smears, nothing else. But a drop forms its own definite drop pattern and permeates the cloth, soaks in. Mm-hmm. No signs of that on her dress. Not a one. Now, here's a silk scarf the old lady was strangled with. Yeah. Here's what I found in the knot tied in the scarf. A blonde hair, wavy. Old lady had dark hair. So does Miss Renard. So does her boyfriend. That's what I mean. This blonde hair is one of two things that didn't belong at that murder scene. What else you got? This hair. Where is it, Lee? 
Small piece of plastic. A gun butt, I'd say. See here? Uh-huh. Crisscross surface, then a little smooth area here. Yeah. The killer could have hit the old lady with the butt of a gun. And a piece of the stock could have chipped off like this, huh? Mr. Bernard doesn't own a gun. Neither did her mother know. Well, where does that leave us? I don't know, Joe. There's the stuff. You can't disregard it. Maybe you can explain it. Yeah. How? Well, first prove this dress isn't the one Mrs. Renard was wearing this morning. Then find the dress she did wear. And we know she wore this when the dentist identified it, and so did two of the neighbors. That's what I mean. The dress is too clean, doesn't belong. Yeah. And this blonde hair, this piece of gun butt, they don't belong either. Well, then you think she's innocent. You're looking at the evidence. What do you think? <laughs> 6 p.m. Saturday, November 5th. Ben and I went back to the office and met with Brennan, Wiseman, and Ed Backstrand. The open and shut case against Mrs. Renard was up in the air, but we still weren't sure that she was innocent of the murder of her mother-in-law. Ben and I drove to the Lincoln Heights jail and interviewed the suspect again. She agreed to submit to a lie detector test. We drove back to the office, contacted Sergeant Berger, the department's polygraph man, and set up a special test for the following day. The next morning, we met with Berger and formulated a list of key questions, and then we picked up Mrs. Renard and brought her to the third floor of the old city jail building, the polygraph room. At 10.33 a.m., the test got underway. As usual, Sergeant Berger conducted the interview alone. Backstrand, Ben, and I waited outside. Well, um, how about Mrs. Renard's husband? Getting down yet? He's due in around noon, Skipper. Uh, uh, got a smoke? Here It, Ed. Now, what'd you get? I can study the chart a little more. The results are pretty well defined, though. How's it look? No reaction to the key questions. What's your opinion? I don't think she did it. You are listening to Dragnet, authentic stories of your police force in action. And in leading magazines this week, you'll see this authentic story. Headline, Fatima's sensational growth sets a record for long cigarettes. Then you'll read the actual reason smokers give for changing to Fatima. Fatima is different. It's mild and has a wonderful flavor. Fatima's best. These are the words of Miss Pamela Bookman of New York, where Fatima has increased its smokers 100 Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. 
They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Do you need an awesome and underground space for an event? Look no further than MutinyRadio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, we run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's performance space at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission at 21st in Florida. Contact Pam at pamsadai at hotmail.com for more options and booking dates. Incredible socialist prices so you can be creative in a free speech space without breaking the bank. That's Mutiny Radio Rentals every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10. Book your event now. Trying to hurt me, but boy, how it burns me whenever she touched me. And oh, I feel so lucky. Want to spend a summer Sunday laughing your cares away? Then come join the fun at San Francisco's Comedy Day. One stage, five hours, 40 comedians, a million laughs, and it's free. Besides our annual celebration of stand-up, did you know that Comedy Day offers workshops that teach Bay Area students how to use humor to resolve conflict? Comedy Day is so serious about ending bullying, it's banning all comedians from using the following phrases. Knee-slapping, side-splitting, break a leg, bust a gut, knock them dead. Those words hurt. But Comedy Day feels good. It's fun for the whole family. Did I mention it's free? Hey, comedy fans, don't miss the 37th Annual Comedy Day, the original longest-running free outdoor comedy concert in the world. The funny starts at noon on Sunday, September 17th at Sharon Meadow in Golden Gate Park, San Francisco. One stage, five hours, 40 comedians, a million laughs. It's free! Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard, as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. Yes. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can 
listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> yeah. If you're looking for some delicious late-night food, I suggest you mosey on down to Bender's Bar. Inside, you can find Counter Offer, offering you amazing late-night food and snacks. Try the chicken biscuit. It's like your stomach's in a tasty tornado. They have exceptionally great daily ground sustainable burgers with sides of tater tots, grilled asparagus, and delicious zucchini. And creamy-licious mac and cheese. You like tacos? They get them. And from the specials, very deep fried fish sandwich to a stoner burger with a donut bun. What are those crazy potheads going to come up with next? Go to the counter offer inside of Brenda's Bar at 800... Hello. Hello, four. Okay. I'm the offer, son! has already been done before, and there's nothing really you can do about it. So remember to avoid taking risks and to whisper into feathers together in the dark. It's the right thing to do, and viewers like you. We let's say this is in town, it's time for a train ride. Circus Town train rides are the dependable ones that'll depart and arrive on time. The ones that'll take you from clown to trapeze quad elephant, see? But come on the train with the circus promise. It's intense. Listen to Shaggy's Soul Shakedown Party tonight. All right, folks, as you know, as you know, Shaggy's Soul Shakedown is every Thursday. Every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. here on MutinyRadio.fm. What's with the limp? Your baby's falling. You know I'm talking now. You know I'm dancing. You know I'm racing round. Oh no, you're so drunk. 
My name is Abby, and I have Ewing sarcoma. St. Jude is trying to make it go away. You can join the battle to save lives during Childhood Cancer Awareness Month by supporting St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. 
One day she was playing with dolls and doing her hair, and the next day she doesn't have any. I don't know where we would be without this hospital. Let's end childhood cancer together. Cigarette, come down, stop and breathe a second. 